0: you to give a warm Woodland Hills welcome to Dave Johnson nice. ah thank you thank you it's good to be here um, I was just looking at my watch and I'm going okay yeah Greg's probably up in the pulpit right now saying some stupid things that I don't know what they are but I'm pretty sure he's making um, uh, uh, an inappropriate fool of himself, as he often does. Greg and I are very good friends. I feel connected to this church in ways you don't know. Uh, Greg and I got together um, last Thursday. We went to his house, and we do that as much as we can just to kind of get together and reconnect and uh, tell our story to each other and, and whine and complain and all these other things. And, uh, and he mentioned kind of in passing dude, dude, we're kind of coming up on 20 years at Woodland Hills, 20 years of existence, and I think you're aware of that, probably going to have some celebration coming up, and, and we we'll looked at each other, I go, you got to be kidding me, 20 years? And both of us immediately tapped into, man, do we feel old. And, um, but it's been 20 years, and the thing that's fascinating about that is that 28 years ago, um, when you guys began... You know, right? Twenty years ago, I, I was at a real crisis point in my life and in my ministry. I'd kind of hit the wall, emotionally exhausted. Uh, at Open Door, and um, I, you know, the 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 the, um, the elders at the time said, "Dave, you need if you don't turn the engine off right now, you're gonna you're gonna burn this thing up. You're not out of gas. You're out of oil. Blah blah blah. You need to get out of here and go find you know your juice again." And I was given a sabbatical, like three months, and who's gonna fill the pulpit? Uh, we had a couple of people who could do it here and there, but Greg Boyd, this guy named Greg Boyd, was going to our church at the time, and we were good friends, and I remember calling him saying, Greg, uh, oh, would you, you know, think about, would you consider maybe... Uh, uh... And for about three months, two and a half months, I think, Greg Boyd came to Open Door and, and took the pulpit at Open Door and at a critical time in our church's life where we needed to hear a, a kind of a, an encouraging word, but a, a word that was going to call us deeper, deeper, um, into some things relative to the life of God, Greg came and invested uh, his life uh, in us, and it has marked us. It, it's affected our DNA as a church, and it's one of those things that, man, I just, everybody had Open door. I mean, it's 20 years ago. They don't all remember that story, but I remember it, and I know it, and I know how Greg's life and ministry has affected us relative to kind of who we are and who we've become, but, and it wasn't all about this, but it was also for him at that time when he took our pulpit for three months, two and a half months, whatever it was, um, he got a taste of something that God had been kind of stirring in him uh, relative to doing that kind of thing, and not just teaching at Bethel, but pastoring a church, and at the end of that time, when I came back and said, Greg, you have to leave now, Um, (laughs) uh, no, we began to talk about what's going on here, and um, Remember saying, "Hey, I want to start a church," and I said, "That'd be great. Do it very far away." And um, (laughs) no, honestly, um, I remember as a church just kind of coming around, Greg, and coming to our people and saying, "We know the anointing. God's on this guy, and um, he's given him a vision and a passion, and he wants to do it here." And, um, we sent him out with our blessing and, and, just, I remember saying people, you shouldn't do this. But we just said, there are some of you in our church, open door, who have a heart to go with him. This is something that resonates with you and you need to go. And they did. And about 4,000 went and, and, um, we had nothing left. <laughs> now it was just a great thing. And I don't know if you know all that story, but that's part of your story and it's part of our story and it's part of why we're connected. And it's honestly, it's really part of why I'm delighted to be with you today, um, Because we're connected, Um, let's pray as we go to the Word. Okay, Father, I thank you for the life of your Spirit in this place. Lord, I just lift up open door right now. I think of Greg right now, um, probably doing something like I'm doing right now over there, um, saying hello to everybody there. And we just thank you for the connectedness of things in the Spirit. And now, as we come around the Word, I pray that the same Spirit that was activated in the context of our worship would continue to be activated in moving. Through the word of God, by the power of your spirit, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, open them to Colossians. I know you know where that is because you've been in Colossians. First chapter, though, we're going to kind of go back to some stuff you've already covered, I'm sure. But I told Greg about this, and he said it's okay because he looked at it from a different angle. First chapter, beginning in the third verse. Where, because of what Paul talks about here uh, in this particular section, this morning we're going to talk about hope. And what we put our hope in, and what it is we hope for, and what it feels like to lose hope, and I think all of us know what that feels like from time to time, and also how it is that some people who live in very difficult circumstances that might consider, that we might consider hopeless still find a way to have hope. When people are able to do that, I'm very curious, much like Actually, the people to whom Paul is writing this letter, the Colossians, these people who lived in Colossae, because to live in Colossae, as I'm sure you know, because Greg, I'm sure kind of went through some of the history, was to live in the shadow of Rome, the power of Rome, and all of what that meant, which, as it turns out, meant, among other things, that living in Colossae was a frightening place to live. So frightening, in fact, that lots of really good people who really loved Jesus had lost their hope because they lost, some of them, their land. Uh, to Roman domination. It's what Rome did when Rome came and did what they do. They flexed their muscles to kind of prove who was in control. Sometimes they would say, that's not yours, that's mine. So some of the people in Colossae had lost their land. Many of them had lost their freedom. Again, because of Roman domination, they became enslaved. And many of them in Colossae had lost their lives. Being nailed to Roman crosses, one of the techniques that Rome used to terrorize people so they could maintain control, But nonetheless, in light of all of that, or in spite of all of that, Paul, along with Timothy, wrote these words to them. In Colossians 1, beginning in verse 3, we give thanks, he says, to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And the reason we give thanks when we pray is because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, And they heard of all of this, faith and hope and love, from Epaphras, who so we're going to meet in verse 7. Epaphras is the guy who came to Colossae to bring a report to Paul, who was in prison. So we've heard of your faith, verse 4, that manifests itself in love, which you have for all the saints. And you have this faith and love, verse 5, because of the hope you have laid up for you. In heaven, and I don't want to make a big thing of this, but I want you to get kind of the flow here. Um, the order of this faith, hope, and love is significant because the faith and love came from the hope. Indeed, the NIV New International Version calls it the faith and love that springs from hope. And so, kind of see a, a little pot here of hope, and from this hope, things are coming. From this hope, coming is coming faith, and from this hope is coming love. But the hope came from someplace too. End of verse 5. It came from this hope that gives birth to faith and love. That hope came from, end of verse 5, the word of truth, which you previously heard, the gospel, the gospel, familiar phrase or word, Um, the euangelion is the Greek word there. It simply means good news, which was a common phrase, this euangelion phrase in Paul's They used by the Romans to speak of what they referred to as the good news that Caesar is Lord, which makes this phrase, Jesus is Lord, uh, sound a little different. I don't know if Greg went into that or not, but Jesus is Lord is not just part of a worship song. It's, in the first century, would have been a very subversive thing to say, as if to say, no, 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 I don't think it's Caesar, I think it's Jesus But it was also used in a variety of ways. This word euangelion, and one picture I think that might help you get a picture of what's going on here in this text, is that this word euangelion was also used in the context of battle. When the armies had gone to war and the people of the city are back in the city, not knowing how the battle is going. You can even kind of imagine what that would feel like. You know something's going on out there, uh, and it has, it's going to have a lot of impact on you relative to life and death, slavery or freedom. Because if we lose this battle, we're slaves. If we lose this battle, we're dead. And so you're wondering how the battle is going when in the distance they would see a runner. And often by what this runner was wearing, they would know he had euangelion, he had good news, or maybe not, often based on what they were wearing. And as this person would burst through the gates of the city, he would shout at the top of his lungs, I have euangelion, I've got good news, the war is over, the victory is won, and in that context of a literal battle, that word, euangelion, gave birth to a whole, as you can well imagine. Because by virtue of the fact that we won the war or the battle, it's not going to be death, it's going to be life. It's not going to be slavery, it's going to be freedom. I got euangelion. All of that in mind, come back to the text, verse 6. And this Yuan euangelion, this good news, that the war is over, I guess. It's not going to be slavery, it's going to be freedom. It's not going to be death, it's going to be life. This Gullion, which has come to you, just as in all the world it has come, it is constantly bearing fruit, increasing, even as it has been doing in you, in you personally, since the first day you heard of it, and understood the grace of God in truth. And remember where you learned of this from Epaphras, verse 7. Our beloved fellow bondservant was a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Indeed, he's the one who told us of your love in the Spirit. That's the text. And, and all of that stuff I've given you, just to get started here, raises a number of questions. The first is this. What is this word of truth that gives birth to hope in the hearts of people who actually have reason to have no hope? What is this word of truth that, gives, that stirs such faith that manifests itself in love in places like Colossae? Um, but even beyond Colossae, according to the text... It says, because in all the world, Paul says, verse six, this word of truth is bearing fruit. You may not know it, you may not see it. I see it, says Paul. In all the world, this, this Euangelion, word of truth, it's stirring people's hearts, it's giving people hope. Even and this is the, the stunning thing. It's giving them hope and stirring up faith, even in the context of circumstances where where there seems to be no hope. Which which makes me pretty curious. I mean, I get. It. Feeling hopeful when things are going well. When things are not, I'm always curious. Where do you get that stuff? <laughs> because we human beings are hopers. Hope is why people get married. Hope is why we have, have kids. Hope is why we stick with a marriage when it's really difficult, when things get tough, because we hope. It's not always going to be this Maybe if we stick with it, it will get better. Hope is why farmers plant seed. It's why people play the stock market. It's why people go on blind dates. (laughs) I grew up in Chicago, and um, there's a lot of aspects of that growing up that I've never been able to shed myself of. It's like a disease I can't get over. I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. It's just uh, the way it is. It's not a choice. It's just kind of a thing I am. And every spring, it's the weirdest thing, every single spring. It only happens in the spring because once the season starts, it's over. But at every single spring, I start getting interested in who they picked up in the off season, what their lineup might be, you know, who their players might be because... In the only, it's the only time of the year I feel this thing. You know what it is? I feel hope. And it lasts that long. It's over now. Our record is the same as the twins. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. What they're booing. <sighs> Proverbs thirteen twelve says this, relative to hope. That hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. Because the truth is this. All joking aside, and you know this is true. The human spirit can survive just about anything. It's, an, it's amazing what we can persevere through, but if you lose hope, oh, that, that'll take your breath away. You can actually feel that in your body. It can actually make you sick. Hope deferred makes the heart Grow sick, which actually raises another. <clears throat> another. <laughs> It'll come one day. Uh, important question. What are you hoping for? Um, what are you hoping in? Because we're all hopers. We just are. Hope I get that job. Uh, hope we get that house. Hope the kids are safe. Hope my spouse comes back. Hope we don't lose them. Hope it's not cancer. But what if it is cancer? And, and what if you do lose them? And, and, and what if they don't come back? What, what are you hoping now? Paul was in a Roman prison when he wrote these words. Um, didn't know if he was going to live or die. That's something that's evident in almost all of his prison epistles. You see it especially in Philippians where you can actually tell from what he was writing that he thought he was going to die. Um, So what do you think he was hoping for when he was in this prison writing this letter to the church in Colossae? I'm sure he was hoping for a lot of things, even kingdom things relative to what God would do among the Colossians. But among the things I think he might have been hoping for might have been this, hope I get out. That would be good. Fact is in this imprisonment he does get out. He isn't executed, but in the next imprisonment, he doesn't get out. He is executed. Indeed, he's beheaded west of Rome on what's known as the Ostian Way. And the Colossians, to whom this letter is being written. Living in the shadow of Rome as they did, had tangible reasons to fear. Every day it would be in their face because emperor worship as I'm sure you know, I'm sure Greg covered this kind of stuff, meant emperor worship in Colossae, meant claiming Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord, was a crime. Don't you think they were hoping for? Well, as I'm sitting there, you know, going to church, you can think real grandiose things, but as I'm sitting in my little uh, house, wherever I live with my little family, I'm thinking, hope they don't notice that I think Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And if they do notice, I hope they don't care. Because that's a possibility. There were certain provincial rulers of Rome that, that w- 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 would really, you know, drop the hammer. Others, this little Jesus sect, who cares? Do what you want, I don't care. Um, but what if they do care? I uh, hope they don't imprison me. Um, maybe execute me. <laughs> okay, me too. But what if they do? What are you hoping now? And, and what on earth was this word of truth that sounded like good enough news to give people hope in circumstances like that? The well, short answer to that is found in places like 1 Corinthians 15. Some of you might have even been thinking of this, where this same Paul, uh, who wrote to the Colossians, wrote to the Corinthians with great passion, uh, reducing the word of truth, the euangelion, to this one thing. First Corinthians 15, verse 1 says this For I make known to you, brethren, the Evangelion, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. Right? Delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, and then to the twelve, then to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, and then he appeared to James and to the apostles, and then, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And that is pretty central to answering the question about what gives birth to Hope in the face of Roman prisons and Roman crosses and Roman Caesars because now Christ has been raised. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, described in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 as the first fruits of those who sleep, which sends a message to call Jesus' resurrection the first fruits. What it means is this we don't just cheer the resurrection because he did it, like someone scored a touchdown, yay, but because he rose, what that means is, I will too. And that was the Evangelion. That was at the the root of this word of truth that gave birth to hope in places like Colossae, where there was very little hope, which just had to drive Rome nuts. (laughs) Because no matter how much they huffed and they puffed, no matter how much they tried to hurt people and crush people and terrorize people, because the whole design of the terror was to control people, there was still this growing group of people who still had hope. And their hope, in fact, was only increasing their faith. This is really irritating. And increasing their love for each other. We just can't beat these guys. And Paul said it this way. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, afflicted. Oh, yeah. Perplexed all the time. Persecuted, yes, struck down a lot. But I'm not crushed, not despairing, not forsaken, not destroyed. In other words, I still have hope. But um, While I get all of that um, I really do All the way down to the ground And I'm guessing you do too How this resurrection stuff gives birth to hope I get all that Particularly when facing death This question, at least for me Still persists And the question is this What about day to day? Because the stuff I'm facing today And tomorrow, the things you're going to wake up with on your mind that are disturbing you and scaring you might be life and death, but they might not be life and death. It's this day-to-day stuff. I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor. I've heard these verses. I've heard these things all my life. And and it was like, well, you got heaven. Heaven. So I wake up tomorrow morning and my wife can't stand me. My husband's having an affair. My kids don't want to be in the same room with me. I just lost my job. And someone comes up to me and says, you got heaven. I'm going to (laughs) punch him. Sorry. I know that doesn't sound very spiritual, but it doesn't help heaven when you're in the when you're hanging on a cross, as it were. (sighs) Heaven is true. I believe, but it feels real far away. Here's my question. How do, you, how do you find hope? Not just when you're dying. I get that. I'd like to know how to do it when you're living. Because um, in some ways, that's the hard, hard place. Um, so how did Paul do this? What did he see that maybe we need to see? Well, to answer to that question, I want to kind of dig a little deeper. And let me, let me start with this. When I'm talking about this faith and hope uh, that can be experienced, maybe, in the context of really uh, difficult and real-life situations that you're going to wake up with tomorrow morning. That the kind of faith and hope we're talking about here is, first of all, not born of denying or ignoring or minimizing your feelings of despair. It's not born of pretending everything is great when everything is not great. It isn't like fairy dust that magically makes your problems go away. Because here's the deal. Paul saw his problems clearly and he, and he felt the pain of them deeply. Indeed, in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, he says, you guys, in writing this letter, I don't want you to be unaware. I, I want to tell you about what I'm going through. I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction that came to us when we were in Asia. We were burdened excessively, beyond our strength, despairing even of life. I thought he never despaired. Despairing even of life. At least in this moment, I despaired of life. My, My point there is, when he despaired of life, he didn't pretend he didn't. He saw these things, didn't deny or minimize these things. But here's the key, I think. While he didn't deny or minimize the pain he was in, the struggle he was facing, he saw more than these things. 2 Corinthians 4.18. He says this, For we look not at things which are seen. Um, I'm not in denial, but, but, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, which doesn't mean they're not real. Uh, they're real. They just don't last. But the things which are unseen are eternal in verse 17 of that same chapter he calls this he calls it this momentary light affliction that is that is producing an eternal weight of glory this momentary light affliction again i grew up in church heard these verses all my life this momentary light affliction what is that and i'll I'll be saying that's that's what i'm in right now i'm having a bad day it's just a momentary light affliction it's a day uh, it's a week, and then it turns into a month. It's a momentary month. I had a bad month. I had a bad year. This, you know, you know this momentary. You know what Paul is saying? This just one life. This life is a momentary light affliction that is, is producing an eternal light of glory. And that is why, though afflicted, I am not crushed. Though perplexed, I'm not despairing. Though in pain, I'm full of the faith that springs from hope. Because though I see the problems and feel the pain, I'm not denying them. I'm not going to minimize them. I see more than those things. Which leads to the real question of the day that I would like you to camp around. And if you can, in some personal way, do it. Here's, here's the question. What do you see? in what I'm going to call your personal battle, and I'm assuming you have one, because I have one. Maybe you don't, but those of you who do will resonate with this. In your personal battle to find hope and faith in the middle of of circumstances that threaten to crush those things, what do you see? Hebrews Hebrews 11 verse 1 says this about faith, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. There's that word again, hope. It's a conviction of things not seen. And things not seen are eternal things. That's not the prosperity thing. They're they're not the boat you don't see yet. But if you believe God, it will appear in your driveway. That's not what that is. Um, People full of faith and hope live their lives. Let me get it down to this. People full of faith and hope live their lives with the realization, assurance, and conviction that there is more going on in life than what we can see with physical eyes. Because we're living in a much bigger story than today or tomorrow or this momentary light affliction. So, people full of faith and hope do not deny, ignore, or minimize what is real. They don't pretend they're happy when they're not and call it faith. That's ridiculous. Um, when, people, when, when Paul despaired of life, as I said a moment ago, in 2 Corinthians 1.8, he didn't pretend he didn't despair. No, because people full of faith and hope don't deny or minimize their pain. They just see more. And what they see is a bigger story. And what they have is an eternal perspective. And what they know is that this life is not all there is to life. Though they sometimes need to be reminded of that. And that's one of the reasons we need community. To be reminded of what we forget. And what all of that produces, among other things, is freedom. I mean, we can find the sweet spot of this because we do move in and out of it. But when we can find it, what it produces is freedom and a kind of fearlessness to live and to love and to attempt and to accomplish To sometimes defy, that is to say no when you're going to pay a price for saying no. To support when you're going to pay a price for supporting, to endure, to persevere. Here's the deal, beloved. Um, In uh, Colossae, the people of Colossae saw Rome. And they saw Caesar. And sometimes they saw their friends hanging on Roman crosses. And they didn't deal with it by going, it's not that bad. (laughs) One little friend on the cross, what's a big deal? Uh, they didn't deal with it by saying Caesar can't hurt us. Said Rome, I just believe God. We'll all be fine, and no one will have any pain. They didn't do that because it wasn't true. Because Rome was big, and they were getting nailed to crosses. They saw all of that, didn't minimize any of that. They just saw more than that. And what they saw gave birth to hope. From which sprang faith and love. And this pattern, you guys, this story, uh, this word of truth, flows all through the scriptures. Paul didn't think this up. Um, From beginning to end, because it's all part of the story of God that gives birth to hope. Let me tell you some stories. There's stories you know. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them? Saw the fiery furnace. Remember Nebuchadnezzar said, you need to bow down to me. And if you don't bow down to me as God, then I'll throw you in the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no. And so they are. Here they are standing in front of the fiery furnace. And I'm pretty sure when they were standing in front of the fiery furnace, they were afraid. And I don't think they dealt with the fiery furnace by saying to each other, don't worry, it's not that hot. No, they saw the furnace, they felt the heat, they knew it was going to hurt, I'm I'm sure they were very afraid, they saw it very clearly, they just saw more, and because they saw more, they defied the order of a king, you know the story when they said, our God can't deliver us, and then they got real feisty, our God will deliver us, and then they got a little more realistic and said, but if he doesn't, I don't care, we're still not bowing down to you. Uh, how do you do that? When you can feel the heat and you're not denying the heat, you somewhere have to see more. Hebrews 11, 27 says, By faith Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. And the reason he didn't fear the wrath of the king was he walked out of Egypt going, He's not that bad. He kind of likes me. Uh, he wouldn't hurt a flea. <laughs> that isn't why he Left, He said he endured. He left, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is what? Unseen. So he saw Egypt. He saw the king of Egypt. and he knew what the king of Egypt could do to him. He'd seen it before when the king of Egypt didn't get what he wanted. And someone defied him. He understood all of that. He didn't minimize any of that, but he saw more than that, and so he left. Joshua and Caleb were about to go into the promised land, a place called Kadesh Barnea. Numbers 13, verse 1 says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourselves men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the children of Israel. And you shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. The report from the majority was that it was indeed a land of abundance and promise. But verse 28 says this, The people who live in this land... Are strong and their cities are fortified and very large, and so they gave a bad report. Verse thirty-two, saying this: "It's a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw were men of great size, so much so. End of verse thirty-three, that we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and that's all that they could see. In fact, as Joshua and Caleb." You know how they came with a different report. But it's very fascinating, and I think it's important to say and note that Joshua, Joshua's, and, Joshua and Caleb's uh, positive report about going into the land was not minimizing or denying the problems in Canaan. They didn't come back going, giants? I didn't see any giants. Did you see giants? Oh, the fortified cities? Not that big. We can take them. This is not about minimizing what is real. Joshua and Caleb, I'm quite sure, said, Oh, they're right, absolutely. They're huge. And we do look very small in comparison to them. And those cities are fortified and very large. They just saw more. And then there's Nehemiah. I love this story. Nehemiah, who had given himself to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, something that you're probably not going to do, <laughs> pretty sure. Uh, you're not going to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. So dial it down to, they had given themselves to a great work. He had given himself to a noble cause. And where we're going to pick up the story is that they're at the halfway point. They've, they've built half of the wall, but half is left to go. And I just need to tell you, in, in, in every conceivable way, the halfway point of your ministry, of your life, of your church, of your marriage is a critical time. In fact, the, the ancients had a word for this halfway point. They, they called it acedia. And It's a Latin word that means the fatigue that strikes at noonday. Because noonday is halfway. And the thing that's significant about halfway is that um, you're not near done. But you've been at this for a while. I, I remember when I was in college, I worked construction. Uh, poured cement, uh, you know, between you know, freshman year, sophomore year at college, and that kind of stuff, and um, it was 95 degrees in Chicago, and i get up every morning, and after I wiped the sleep out of my eyes, I had all sorts of energy, I mean, it was like, I'm ready to go, and and then you'd work in the sun till it was noon, and the, the hard thing about noon wasn't just that you'd been in the sun for six hours, it was that you had six more hours to go, uh, that's kind of a midlife thing, some of you can maybe relate to, it's... I remember, I remember just getting out of college, just getting out of seminary. Nostrils flaring. I'm going to win the world. <laughs> and then you hit this midlife thing. And it's not just that you've been at it for a while because the, the work isn't what wears you out. It's, it's, it's the fact that I'm, I'm halfway and I don't, I'm not near done. <laughs> and I don't have some of the same juice I had when I was just ready to go. Very significant. Nehemiah is at building the wall. They're halfway done. Critical place. In fact, it says in Nehemiah 4 verse 10 that the strength of the laborers was giving out at the halfway point. And this is what they said. Because there's so much rubble, we can't rebuild. So the rubble at the halfway point was all they could see. So they were losing... Hope. Even though, if they would stop and maybe look at what had already been built, they might be take some joy. Wait, 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 wait. We got to look at something other than the rubble. We at least need to take a moment here to see what God has done through the work of our hand and celebrate this. There's times when you can't see that, and one of the critical times is this halfway point, because all they could see was the rubble, so they were losing hope, which brings me to this question. What do you see? Fact is this, you know it's true. Anyone who has ever persevered in anything, a sport, uh, maybe something more important than that, a marriage, a career, uh, raising your kids, a ministry like Woodland Hills Church, anyone who's persevered at anything at all was able sooner or later to see more than the rubble of the relationship, more than the rubble of. The marriage, the ministry, the mistake. I've been at Open Door for 31 years. A few months, it'll be 32. And I can just just tell you, as I think about the story and the journey of being at Open Door, um, (laughs) more than a little rubble. And I can also tell you there were times, and there will probably maybe be times again, I don't know. But there are times when the rubble is all you can see. And those are the most discouraging, critical. We have built something, I don't even care about what's gone on before. The wall we've already, oh, this rubble we cannot rebuild. By the way, what I'm describing is common to man. This is life. If you've never experienced this, you're 10. I, I, I don't, um, anyway. I um, remember some time ago. Um, at Open Door doing a, a series of sermons and, and, and one of the things I tried to point out was that there are things in our lives that are true and then there are other things that are more true. Which is weird because you usually think of things that are true and false, but okay, there are things that are true and there's things that are more true. For example, um, uh, you're sinners, every one of you. Uh, you have blown it more than once and you may be even living right now with consequences of sin that, uh, and those consequences aren't going to go away for a while. That is absolutely true. But there is something about you that is more true. It's this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace and in him you have been made complete. That's more true. But what do you see? When it even comes to your sin. Because sometimes all we can see is the rubble. In fact, what is the rubble for you? Uh, That's convinced you, I could never rebuild my life. My soul, uh, my marriage, this ministry, whatever. Listen, listen, Listen to me here. Sometimes the ability to see more than the rubble involves a choice. And sometimes you need somebody kind of shaking you a little bit and going, you need to, you need to decide something here. You have kind of chosen, and I'm not, not on your case here, but you've just, you've just kind of become transfixed with this stuff that, that is overwhelming you. You need to make a choice. By choice, by faith, I'm sorry. Yes, by faith, Moses chose. Hebrews 12, verse 2 gives, in, gives this advice, advice for endurance, running the race with endurance. How do you do that? Fix your eyes. I'm telling you, fix your eyes on something other than the rubble. Like what? Well, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, try Jesus. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame. So some of you in your personal struggle to find hope and faith in the midst of circumstances that mitigate against it, kind of need to decide. And that's the little gift you get today. I just, whew, that's I just needed a nudge to go, whoa, I need to look up every once in a while. But sometimes, and this is going to go a little deeper now, um, the ability to see more is a gift. Because sometimes we go blind. And all the encouragement in the world to look up and see more doesn't help. Because even when you do look up, you still can't see because you've gone blind. Uh, Remember Elisha's servant? And that crazy story where, where he, he came to Elisha in 2 Kings 6 because the Syrian army had surrounded them. And he came into Elisha's presence and said, what are we going to do? We're going to die. This is over. We're toast. So Elisha says in verse 16 of 2 Kings 6, don't be afraid. Here's why. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Really, my paraphrase." of what the servant said. Really. Uh, what do you see that I don't see? And so I should pray, verse 17. O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened his servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses, and chariots full of fire. So what are you saying, David? Are you saying that there's horses and chariots of fire all around? And I just need to see that. Um, No, actually. I'm not saying that. Because I don't know that. What I am saying is this. God is for you. I know that. And Christ in you really is our hope of glory. Colossians 1, 27. And if God really is for us, says Paul in Romans 8.31, then who can be against us? Listen to me. Now, I'm going to go through this Romans 8 thing. You'll see it on the screen. But I'm I'm going to read it to you as if I were trying to appeal to you the way I think Paul is doing when he writes this. Listen to me. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring a charge against you? Do you think God is doing that? See, see God, that, that's not what God does. God is the one who justifies. He's not the one who brings the charge. And who do you think is the one who condemns? Who is the one who condemns? Cuz some of you are living under a cloud of condemnation. Who do you think is the one who's condemning you? Christ? Huh? You got it wrong. That's not what he does. That's not his role. Fact is, Christ is the one who died remember <laughs> uh, he's the one who was also raised and is now at the right hand of the father and what he's doing there is interceding for us interceding for you which means among other things he's saying things like this this one's good that one's mine that one's ours too that's what he does so think about it verse 35 who can separate us from the love of God how about tribulation tribulation Sure feels like it can. How about distress? Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril. How about Rome? Can they do it? How about your own failure? Could that do it? No. He says in the next verse, because I'm convinced that neither death nor life Nor angels, nor principalities, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that, beloved, was the word of truth, the euangelium, that was giving birth to hope in places like Colossae where there wasn't much reason for hope, and in Roman prisons, where people like Paul thought he was going to die. But not only there. This hope was being birthed, not only in Colossae and in Roman prisons, but in all the world. Colossians 1, verse 6, this word of truth (laughs) is constantly bearing fruits and increasing, just as it has been doing in you. Woodland Hills Church, since the first day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So here's the word of the Lord to Woodland Hills Church. Get your hopes up. Get your hopes up and fix your gaze. Lift up your head so you can see more than the rubble but sometimes, even when you do lift up your head, you still can't see because we've grown blind. And so we pray <laughs> into that blindness, inability to see more, to see even God. We invite your spirit. In fact, would you just pray with me right now? Holy Spirit, come. Right here, right now, I pray. Well, I I, I, I don't know um, what what level of hopelessness some among us here are battling with. I do know that for some, all they needed was a nudge today, a reminder to decide to look at something other than the rubble. And as soon as they get the nudge, they kind of come to and oh, okay, and they get perspective. And God, we bless. You for that, but there is a blindness that comes on us, all of us, all of us from time to time, and the only way we can be healed is if you touch us, and so I pray in the name of Jesus, for the men and women in this room, who, and I'm just, through no fault of their own, uh, that Elisha's servant wasn't defective in some way, he just couldn't see, and there's men and women here who can't see, and I pray your spirit come. And open the eyes of those who are blind. Uh, help us to see more. Help us to see you. And I even pray, God, that you would activate men and women among us that, 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 that are coming, coming beside people who have lost their hope. And, and they would be, for them, encouragement and help. And um, we just pray these things be released among us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ah. Well, I'm I'm told that you guys do what we do and and that is after uh, the service you you have people available for prayer and uh, words like this have a tendency to stir things up like that for a need for that. So there's going to be that. But I want to speak a benediction over you as we are dismissed. Would you stand with me? I just want want to speak this over you. Hear the word of the Lord. Um, Romans 15 verse 13 says this. Now, may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to read that again. Woodland Hills Church. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave. You're dismissed. Amen.